Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Rachel Tenbrink, who is an investor, founder, CMO, and board member. She was one of the founders and the CMO of Scentbird, which is a beauty subscription service that lets you choose from over 700 top-rated perfumes each month. She was also a partner at 5-4 Ventures. In this episode, you'll learn about personal care trends that Rachel is paying attention to, how working in big CPG led her to become an entrepreneur, and what it was like going through Y Combinator. Without further ado, here's Rachel. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I am great. Thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for being here. This is going to be a lot of fun. I want to start at the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to pursuing a career in consumer packaged goods? You know, it's funny because I will start from a story of just growing up. I grew up in Costa Rica. My parents are Cuban and I am literally uh, the daughter of fishermen. My dad was in the seafood business. And when I was growing up, he had a canned tuna brand. And I remember on Sundays hanging out in the supermarket and looking at people picking up my dad's tuna brand. And for me, that fascination with the consumer and what drove customers was always there from the very beginning. And so that was really, you know, I love the idea of working on tangible products. I love the idea of getting into people's heads and understanding what made them pick one brand or the other. That's awesome. What were some of your learnings from your, um, since your dad had a seafood brand? Like, cause I know like in school, for example, we learn about like brand and maybe like an academic format, but it's always better to hear more about, you know, real world experience, especially when you grew up, um, you know, when you had your family actually own a brand, what were some of the learnings that you maybe when you were younger about maybe how valuable a brand could be? Well, I think that when you grow up around Browns and particularly a, a supermarket brand, you, you have to understand the challenge of differentiation and just how overwhelmed customers are. Uh, you know, the moment of truth is, you know, for obviously at the time at retail, it's like you're standing in this shelf and there's, you know, seven brands of tuna that all look the same. Uh, I think when you're looking at D2C brands, you're, you know, everybody's using the same channels and everybody starts to kind of look in the same colors. And so this point about just crystal clarity around differentiation and, and what made the brand valuable in a customer's eyes, I think that's really, really important. And people forget that. I started my career at Gillette, and I was also at L'Oreal, Estee Lauder, and Bacardi, and Elizabeth Arden. And I think from all of them, it's about uh, understanding your customer and telling a story that is authentic and memorable and relevant. I think that a lot of those early lessons, lessons of relevance, lessons of listening into your customer, lessons around, you know, it wasn't just the Me Too brands. So that was a lot of what I learned. I have to tell you, I also learned that, you know, awareness does not equal relevance. So that was the other thing I learned looking at some bigger, older brands where 
I remember sitting in on a meeting uh, of one of these companies, and it shall remain unnamed, where you know the CMO proudly proclaimed that you know the brand had 95% brand awareness. And in my head, I went, yeah, but does anybody want it, right? <laughs> and so I do think that there's a big difference. And I think it's something that uh, D2C brands le- can leverage very effectively, which is you know, brand awareness as importance, but relevance. Uh, making it important for me is even more important, especially in this omni-channel world that we're in right now. Absolutely. I'd love to know, it's something we haven't really talked about as much on the show, but at the corporate level, how do you think about what your ideal customer is? Since you already have thousands upon thousands of customers, how, do I guess, do you think about segmentation? You know, I think it's really interesting because I do think it's a huge it's a huge challenge for the incumbents, for the PNGs of the world, and it's a huge opportunity for you know founders that are building brands right now. Which is, you know, the future is niche, and I say that very loosely because I think what we're going to, def- you know, what is niche? Is a product for Hispanics niche? Well, niche, but they're eighteen percent of the population. So how niche is that, right? So the point is, I think the customer today has a heightened expectation of being understood. They want products that are for them. And so the sort of the tenets that these big CPG companies were built in, where you built one SKU and sold it to as many people, the exact same thing, are going to start to be chipped away at by these, you know, hyper-relevant, hyper-culturally aware type of brands. But that's where the customer's going. I completely agree. I mean, it reminds me of my conversation with Nick Mandel. I remember him saying, there will never be another Cheerios. And what he meant by that is they're never going to be another brand that's known by, you know, everybody that everyone understands and has such a wide customer segment. Like in the cereal, it's going to be all the newcomers. It's going to be different tribes of people that are very passionate about, as you say, these niche brands, right? After your amazing career in the corporate world, what was your attraction to entrepreneurship and innovation? And I guess like the scrappiness that goes along with being there. Craziness? <laughs> Insanity. You know, I'm definitely an outlier, although I'm excited to see more people sort of taking the jump. I think for me, it was the speed at which you could innovate in a startup was really, really exciting. I could be hyper customer focused. And I felt like, you know, when we were looking at the fragrance category, you know, the general thought was from a manufacturer perspective, the bigger the bottle, the higher the price point, the better, right? But nobody kind of took a step back and said, hmm, millennials are different. They want to try different things. They want variety. They don't want big bottles sitting around. They don't want clutter in their rooms. We used to call it the perfume graveyard, right? And so it was a radical shift in the mentality of, you know, how you approach the product, which wasn't driven by sort of manufacturing margins, but was driven by customer demand. And so to me, that was really, really exciting from a business opportunity standpoint. Um, I think on a personal level, I've always been sort of attracted to the challenge, the legacy, the speed at which startups can evolve and can scale is really fun. I mean, I do call it insanity because I remember, you know, the first couple of months that I was at Sanford with my three other co-founders, I remember just being like the pace of life in corporate is so much dictated by meetings and it's so much dictated by schedules and calendars. And here we were just, you know, four people hustling to build this company. And, and it was all about 
driving results and getting to the next KPI. And so it, it was a little disconcerting almost, but also incredibly motivating for me. Tell us a little bit about like the founding journey or founding story of Scentbird. So the founding story of Scentbird is that I met my co-founder, Maria. We met for a coffee in Union Square. And the funny story is that we were introduced by a mutual friend and I had never met this person before. I'm waiting for her at the coffee shop and she's 10 minutes late. Finally, she calls. She's outside in a taxi and she had forgotten her wallet. So <laughs> the cab driver wasn't letting her get off. So that was the founding story of Scentbird. There were four of us. And I think that's one of the superpowers. You know, on the one hand, it's hard to have a, a big team because it's a lot of founders. On the other hand, having a team where you do have an internal CTO was incredibly valuable, head of product, uh, Maria, uh, Sergey, and Andre. You know, it, it was very helpful to have a big team that could kind of, we could get a lot done from day one. You know, the first couple of months were really blood, sweat, and tears because, you know, it took us a little bit of exploration to figure out our first business model wasn't the model that we ended up with. So it took us a little bit of time to figure that out. And then it was off to the races. So, you know, my role as the CMO was, you know, figuring out how do we get from, you know, zero customers. I remember the first month we had 400 customers and then 1,200. And then, you know, how do you scale it all the way up to where it is today? What were your kind of tactics in order to scale? So, you know, I get asked that question a lot. And the first thing I will caveat it by is to say that there is no foolproof playbook. There is no one solution for all. And I think what's important is the thought process more than the tactics themselves, because frankly, we started in 2014, 2015, and the world continues to evolve very, very fast. So for us, we were right at the cusp of the YouTube revolution. And it was when influencers really started to blow up. And initially it was YouTube, then Instagram, and obviously now TikTok and, and others. But I think the key thing was to take advantage of market inefficiencies. Uh, at the time when we started Scentbird, there are literally thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of emails where it's literally me going, hey, babe, loves your YouTube channel. Can I send you a free perfume? Write about it if you like it. XOXO Rachel. And, you know, and at the time we got free posts from people like Sean XO or, uh, you know, other large influencers that there's no chance you'd get a free post today. But it was because we were early and we identified the opportunity. And so, you know, I think that's the biggest learning is to, you know, when you're a startup, part of your competitive advantage is that you can try things fast and you should, you know, keep your eye on the ball, keep your pulse on where the customer is, what they're exploring and make sure you're, you're testing it fast. Was it difficult to convince customers to actually buy or have perfume in a subscription format? You know, it's interesting because I think it, it just required a lot of education. And again, this is something that I, I talked to a lot of founders about, which is you know, you're so close to your product. It seems so obvious to me, right? It's a perfume subscription. But for consumers, A, perfume subscriptions didn't really exist before we came on board. They, there was one that was very niche, but it really didn't exist. Number two, there was a lot of education around like, 
it's not our perfume. You get to sample Gucci and Prada and other people's perfume. There was a lot of education of, okay, but for 15 bucks, am I getting just like a little vial, like the one you get in a department store? That doesn't seem worthwhile. So we had a lot of education around, you know, the number of sprays that you could get out of the bottle, how long it lasted. And, you know, all that learning that we, all the education, all the pieces that we learned from the customer, we were able then to leverage them. So not only, you know, create constant, you know, when we were doing influencers, create content that answered those questions. But we also, you know, sort of amplified that. For example, on paid social, we would, one of our most successful videos was a video that was literally demonstrating how many spritzes. So people could get a sense of, oh, okay, this is actually a good deal for 15 bucks. You get a pretty large size. It's going to last me enough that this is worth my while. And then, you know, with subscription, I think that there's a process of learning. You know, you have to respect your customer. I mean, some subscription businesses are very tricky in how they put the limits to let people unsubscribe. And I think that ends up backfiring. That ends up giving you a really terrible reputation. Uh, that ends up being a lot of negative reviews. Uh, you know, that's not to say you don't want to go through your funnel and be smart and thoughtful and give people, you know, for example, one of the things that we did to improve retention was, you know, give people a lot of optionality. So for example, they didn't want to perfume every month and they wanted to unsubscribe. How about one every three months? Or how about, you know, some people just, you know, they just lost their jobs. They just didn't have the money right then. So how about if you pause it for a couple of months? So, you know, as you build your subscription businesses, making it really customer friendly, so they're happy to to stay around. That's really important. I was talking with Brian, who's the CEO of Hawthorne. And the first product that they started in is, was actually fragrance. And he said, the reason why he started in fragrance is because he said, fragrance is so hard to sell online. You can't try out the product, right? There's a lot of friction there. I mean, it is the smell, right? So it's really hard for a new brand. And his thought was, if we could figure out fragrance, then we could figure out other opportunities in body care and, and personal care. What were some of the ways that you were able to do it? Since you were started off, I believe, as a designated brand, what were some of the ways that you were able to actually reduce friction? You know, I think that we were lucky in that we were sort of first to market. So we were offering something different. You know, it was a unique packaging. It was a unique price point. We also leveraged the credibility of the brands that we were sampling, right? So it helped a lot that we were, I don't know, Nest Perfumes, people had heard about it, or Vince Camuto, people had heard about these brands. They'd seen them at Macy's, they'd seen them at Sephora. So that helped a lot. I don't think there is you know, for us, what we were doing that was a little bit easier was not just leveraging a new brand, but leveraging a new consumption pattern. And so that was a little bit easier. I do think launching brands online, and I'm friends with several of the D2C brands that have launched fragrances, on. you have to be really smart. You know, our whole thought process when we started Semperd was sort of to remove the barriers to entry to the category, right? So, you know, it's interesting because when we started to pitch Scentbird, a lot of VCs were like, well, you know, my wife just uses Hermes and, and that's all she uses. And we thought, well, yeah, but for your wife, probably spending $250 on a bottle of perfume is not a big deal. But if you're talking about a younger millennial, like it is a big purchase and they want to make sure they love it and they want to make sure that they're going to use it. And so creating an experience, a passage where they could get to that was really important. That all makes sense. I mean, especially... And that what's different too is that leveraging the brand's credibility. And so you're really thinking about almost a new purchase behavior in the actual subscription model. 
um, as opposed to, you know, Hawthorne, my example, which was actually building a new brand um, uh, per se. So that, that makes a lot of sense. I know you went through Y Combinator. There's a certain mystique around Y Combinator. What was that experience like? Incredible, crazy. And it's not to say they're necessarily good or bad, but they've definitely changed a lot. So we were batch of summer 2015. You know, by the time we went through Y Combinator, we already had a couple of employees. We had operations in New York. So my three other co-founders moved to California and I was flying back and forth, which was a little crazy. Look, I think that there's a couple of things. One is just access to this incredible network of advisors. Uh, Michael Siebel, who's the CEO of Y Combinator, is still probably one of the smartest people I've ever met in real life. <laughs> I, I will say that humbly. Just, just somebody who's incredible, you know, and that's why he's so good at his job. Like, he knows very, very little about your business and yet can give you such eye-opening advice just from sheer intelligence. So that was incredible. The dinners on Tuesdays were great, but frankly, the most incredible part was the access to capital. And I think that one of the things that we were really, was really eye-opening, and I think it's still true today, although things have gotten better, is just how much more capital there is on the West Coast than there is on the East Coast. There were just a lot more venture capitalists, you know, deals were made, were being made faster. So I think, you know, I, I will caveat this by saying that, you know, YC doesn't really invest in CPG. And, you know, I've definitely had a couple of conversations of, you know, is there an opportunity to build a YC for, for consumer? Uh, because they really don't do much. Uh, I think the reason they took Scentbird was more about our digital footprint and our recommendation algorithm than it was about a digital product, than a physical product. But I think it's it's an incredible experience. After Scentbird, what attracted you to investing? What made you leave Scentbird? Were they already grown to a point where you're like, you know what, I actually prefer like the earlier stages? Let's kind of hear it. I'd been there six years. Company's still doing great. I'm super proud of my founders, but I was ready for a new challenge. And I think that one of the most exciting things about being particularly an early stage investor is that you get to help not just one company, you get to help drive not just one company's growth, but many. And I think for me, that was so much fun. Uh, I love the early stage because I think it's it's such a, a critical point. And if you can unlock the value, then everything goes from there, right? So for me, there's there's something magical incredibly hard about that early stage that I was very excited about. I would say number one, and I think number two, the other piece I, I will talk about is I felt a sense of legacy and opportunity. You know, I think there are so many underestimated founders in terms of women, minorities, Latinos, African-Americans. And I felt like, you know, it was sort of my mission. I mean, I can't tell you as an early investor, how many times I talked to founders who were like, wow, Rachel, you're the only woman we've talked to. We've talked to 90. I literally had this happen with a Y Combinator company that told me we've talked to 97 investors and you're the first women. And I was shocked. So I think that it's a little better on the consumer space because I think that there, there have been a lot of women who have been founders in that space. There have are a lot of women who are investors in that space, but let's not forget. I mean, it's, I think it's something like only 5% of general partners are women. And so I did feel like, wow, I, I want to make a difference in this world. So, so that was a big part of it as well. If you talk about like Latina 
VC general partners, I am literally 0.2%. So literally, I am a statistical error. Uh, So, you know, there's a few of us. I'm super proud, but I think there's so much room and there's so much opportunity and so much value we can unlock. I mean, it's really about the value that the sort of undervalued assets that you can bring to the table for your investors. I mean, my point is 85% of consumer purchasing decisions are made by minorities or women. So yeah, we kind of know a thing or two about consumer, right? Like, let's just call it what it is. We know a thing or two about consumer. I do think there are fantastic undervalued founders out there and and great companies to be built. So how do you think then when you became an investor, and I know you're still an investor, how do you think then, when you think about opportunities, do you look at maybe markets or demographics that you think that are underserved that, hey, I want to invest in founders that are building for these maybe communities that are underserved? Is that how you kind of think about where the opportunities lie? I mean, I think that sort of three key criteria, that three sort of buckets that I think about. And I think first and foremost, it starts with team. And I approach that from the perspective of somebody who's been in their shoes. And so I think, you know, a diverse team with complementary skill sets, it has been proven that diverse teams are 30% better outcomes than all white male teams. So I do look for diversity, although I don't only invest in diversity. I do think there's huge value there. I think the other part of it is you have to have the drive, right? It has to be the type of a founding team that's going to like bash through walls, but is also humble and creative and product obsessed and consumers, customer centric. So, you know, that really sort of tests and learns fast. So I think there's a whole bucket around team that if you don't have, it's not going anywhere. And that uh, there are some very specific metrics that you can lean against. I think the second piece is around just the market, right? And it's interesting because I think that the point of underserved markets and, and to the point that I was saying about Latinos is there are some really huge underserved markets, right? Um, I think about figs going public uh, was just announced. I mean, people would have said, oh, you know, uniforms for nurses, that's a niche market. Not so much, right? And so it's about sort of that creativity that meeting the consumer needs that it can be a very large addressable market because obviously you want, you know, venture backable type of business. You need that sort of 10x exit potential, but I still believe there's huge opportunities out there. And then I think the the third piece is really around traction. I mean, I particularly for consumer goods, I have to be honest, I have a really really hard time sort of pre 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 before there is uh, anything, because I do believe a lot of uh, consumer success stories are about execution. It's about, you know, are they disciplined? Are they capital efficient? Have they figured out, you know, even if they're tiny numbers, have they figured out acquisition channels? Um, Have they thought about their distribution strategy? Um, How are they thinking about building community and repeat purchases? So I do think that even if it's very early, there needs to be, you know, I, I do always tell founders, like, go out there and validate, challenge yourself as best you can, even if it's small, to prove out that the world needs this. What if a founder came to you and said, might be more in the ideation stage, there might not be a product yet, but maybe had did tons of market research on what their ideal customer wanted. Maybe it's a personal care product. Would that be still too early for you if a founder has done a bit of market research? Personally, yes. I will caveat this. Obviously, there are exceptions. And I think, you know, second time founders that 
are able to scale up faster. It's a little bit easier to back. I will say also that I think the market is quite frothy. And one of the things that I guess I'll roll my eyes out, but you know, when you say significant research, I've been pitched ideas where they're like, yes, we've done extensive research. We've talked to 20 customers. And I'm like, really? Really? 20 customers is extensive research. Like, I'm sorry, but I think you have to be a little bit tougher on yourself. I think there's there's a lot of people that are racing to to just get capital. I think you have to be a little bit tougher on yourself as a founder and make sure that you really do know what your customer wants before you go out and raise money. Yeah, and I think it is tougher in consumer because let's say you've done research and maybe even if it's more than 20, maybe it's like a thousand people or, you know, I think it's really hard because it's like, okay, what's maybe like the question of how much are you willing to purchase for this product or how big of a pain point it is? And I think it's easier to someone say, oh, I'm going to spend a lot of money on this. But then in actuality, you know, they might buckle and say, hey, you know what, actually not so much. Yeah, I was a consultant for a focus group company And I mean, there's a lot of way to lead your customer, right? A lot of it depends on how you ask the question. And I think the biggest question that's hard to ask is, you know, will you pay for this? Because, you know, on paper, sure. If you tell me like, will you pay for this? Yeah. Am I going to actually open my wallet and take out a dollar bill and give it to you? That's a different. So, you know, I'm very careful when people are like, yes, people said they're going to pay $200 for this new brand that nobody's ever heard of. Did they actually give you $200? Because that's a very different uh, stage. And so I think, you know, having had some experience in market research, having had just being a little bit harder on yourself, I think is important. What I think also is tough in early stage consumer is brand is such a huge part of a consumer company, right? And when you're small, when you're first starting out, it's really hard to build that brand equity. Brand is, of course, probably the most expensive asset you're ever going to have to build. How do you, when you're analyzing companies, think about brand and maybe the potential of brand, even though, of course, since it's early, the brand isn't quite there yet? I take it with a grain of salt. I think brand is important, but the product needs to be there and the product need needs to exist. There are some brands that are all brand, right? And I think that if you're going for a brand that is, you know, then I want to see how are you building your brand? Are you building up community? Are you leveraging, you know, are you a YouTuber that already has a huge following and is translating that into product? And how sustainable is that? So to me, yes, brand is important, but there needs to be more to it. There needs to be a product, a need gap that you're filling that is going to sustain the brand forward. Not, you know, it can't all be fluff and you can spend a lot of money on brand, but is do people want the product or are you just shoving it down their throats? So there needs to be some type of product differentiation uh, for you to be interested. And then how do you think about distribution? I've had on investors who've said, you know, obviously we want to look at organic. We want to understand what your breakdown is organic versus paid. Um, I've had some investors that actually say, you know what, we actually are more interested in paid just because then we can actually see if you were to scale, what that actually would look like in terms of your actual acquisition costs. How do you think about community, organic, and paid per se? Yes to all of it. (laughs) I would answer that. And what I mean by that is, look, I think that if your only acquisition channel is paid social, you're going to run out of money at some point, right? If, If you're entirely reliant on Facebook, The Facebook algorithm is going to mess you up at some point, unless your economics are insanely profitable, you're going to, this business is not going to work. So I do look 
at organic. I want to understand you know, what are your customers saying? How are your customers talking to each other? Are they endorsing the product? I think the the number I looked, the repurchase rate, the loyalty rate. And I think, you know, listen, I get it. I've been a first time, an early founder. It's very hard to know you know, your LTV when you've only been in business for three months. No, you don't know what your lifetime value is. You haven't been there a lifetime, right? So I get it. But, you know, understanding all those early signals around organic referrals, LTV, super important. The flip side of that is at some point, even the most successful organic brands are going to have to power up with some sort of paid right? I mean, Glossier is an example. Yes, they are fantastic and they've had so much organic, at least they used to, but frankly, they do out of home. They do Facebook. They do a whole lot of other things to support that. I don't believe that, you know, again, only one channel is going to do it. So I like the thoughtfulness behind a founder that's going to try different channels. So for example, one of the companies that I invested in is called Habit. It's a skincare, sunscare, it's spray. And, you know, Ty is a fantastic founder. You know, absolutely, she's been pushing the organic channels. She's been developing her ambassador program. But at the same time, she's been able to leverage TikTok very effectively. And again, that goes back to my early point about like, figure out what are the growing new channels and jump early on it. She has been very, very smart and leveraging that. And so that's the type of mix that I like to see where there is a push to build up the organic, the recurring, the the stable piece of it. But there's also some thought about like, how do we turbocharge this and how much is it going to cost us to acquire these customers? Since you also came from big CPG and obviously retail, when does it make sense for a brand that's digitally native to actually build out, to actually go into retail? Are you seeing that now that it's becoming earlier and earlier as more retailers are becoming more open to taking in new brands? I just would like kind of love to hear your perspective. When we started, the playbook was you kind of stayed digitally native for two to three years and then started to think about, you know, when you had sort of tapped out on digital, that's when you started to look at retail growth. And I think what's happened since is you're looking at a lot of brands that very quickly go omni-channel and they're thinking, you know, I think the part that we were missing when we were only thinking about digital and it's like, is the interaction between retail, you know, brick and mortar retail and digital and how they can amplify each other. And so what I'm seeing now is brands, you know, after a few months or even, or maybe a year going out to retail. Now, I think that you have to be thoughtful as a founder because you are resource constrained. You don't want to run out of inventory. You want to make sure, you know, you only get so many shots with these retailers and you don't want to fumble. And so I do think that it's important that when as a D2C founder, you decide, okay, this is the right time for me to go into Target, that you're set up for it operationally. It's a lot more complex than D2C in terms of your warehousing and your inventory buildup. It's a lot more demanding on your cash flow. You know, D2C, you get paid every time there's a sale. You know, the terms with retailers are very different. You might have a net 30 or a net 90. And so I think that you need to be in a place, even if it's early, you need to be in a place as a business that can sustain retail. And the other part of it is I love to see founders that are really thoughtful about, you know, don't say yes to everybody, like be thoughtful. Like, where do you want to go first? How do you leverage those play? You know, you know, do you sign an exclusive with target? Maybe that's right. Maybe that's wrong for your business, but you know, what are the right places for you to be at and be really thoughtful about 
how you build up that strategy. And I'll finish that off by saying, you know, those contracts that you sign with manufacturers, with retailers, whatever terms you're agreeing to, you better know what you're doing and make sure you're negotiating them right. Because I've heard of so many horror stories and it's really hard to get those changed once you've settled on them. So, you know, again, to the point about being operationally ready, making sure you have somebody on your sales team who can help you negotiate the right terms for your business. The other point I would make is that the other thing I see brands fumble with is that obviously your product on D2C and your product on shelf, it's a very different user experience, right? Because on D2C, you are able to provide all the user information, the pictures, you might not need a secondary box, you don't even need a barcode, right? And so that's the other piece that I see you know, I think it's really important for, for consumer brands when they start to think about retail is, you know, is your packaging retail ready? Does it tell the story so that somebody who's never heard of your brand understands what the heck you are? Is it shelf stable? Is it going to crunch? Um, so I think, you know, all these nuances are really important to succeed on an omni-channel world. Totally. I absolutely agree. I remember talking with Clayton Christopher about how one of the brands he invested in, he said that one of our brands like got into Target and the founders weren't really paying attention to it. And, you know, being like, oh, we're in Target, it's great, we're gonna, the sale's gonna kind of come easy. And then they didn't really take it seriously, and so now it's a bit of a mess. At the same time, I think whenever you expand your distribution channel, it's not just simply, you know, shipping product. There's a lot more that goes on in terms of, as you say, you know, where you are in the shelf and thinking about the packaging, thinking about all the little details to make sure how you're presented correctly to your customer. Yeah, somebody was just telling me about a natural deodorant brand that didn't do enough testing. And then when they started to go on shelves, the product started to melt. Not good. And again, that's why I say, you know, I think it's it's very tempting right now because retailers are are eager to try D2C brands. They want to sort of leverage the cachet and the the young audience that these brands are going to drive to their stores. But you have to make sure you're you're going to be able to deliver and and because you don't get many shots. There aren't that many great retailers, but at the same time, there's not. And so you want to make sure that you're putting your best foot forward when you're doing it. Totally. And thinking about this too, you know, thinking about CBG and in terms of the times we're in, like what are some of the trends that you're most interested in currently? What I think is most exciting right now is that all of a sudden, you know, investing in clean is not just because it's the right thing to do or it's trend, it's hit critical mass. And when I think about, like, I do think customers are desperate for cleaner products. I think, you know, all the conversations around packaging. So another company that I invested in is called Three Main, and they're a home uh, soap company, and they also have recyclable packaging. I think what's exciting as an investor is that you're not just doing it because it's morally correct, but it's like the critical mass is there already. And so that's what I'm really excited about is that I don't think clean and environmentally sustainable is niche anymore. I think it's it's where the customer is right now. So that I still think is really exciting. I think that, you know, health and wellness, my gosh, this year has you know, if there's ever a year where we realize our mortality and realize our vulnerability and realize the importance of health and wellness. So I think that it will continue well beyond COVID. And I think that the third piece that's, you know, sort of attached to consumer is just all the tools that power e-commerce. I'm really bullish on that because I think that 
there are so many great brands that have recently launched and a lot of them are starting to get scale, but they're still very resource strapped and they're all looking to opt you know, when you think about like all the places that they can optimize their funnel. So if you think about acquisition, you think about payments, you think about logistics, you think about retention, you think about remarketing returns. I think Shopify calls it like arming the rebels. I think there's so much, you know, great businesses to be built to support the consumer brands. Yeah, I think those are all really, really, really good points. I mean, certainly it seems like if you were to start a brand today, you almost have to be sustainable. You almost have to be clean. Why wouldn't you, right? Like, why wouldn't you? Why would you go out of your way to include ingredients that are on the, you know, Sephora non-clean list? Why would you not look for packaging that is recyclable? Right. So I think it's an interesting time. And at the same time, it, it kind of goes back to your original point that you look at brands that actually have some defensibility or or differentiation when it comes to product. And that right there is differentiation. So that makes sense. I also agree with you that in terms of if you look at like the tech stack for a brand today, there's certainly plenty of opportunity when it comes to looking at the infrastructure when it comes to e-commerce. Yeah, I mean... You know, people like to call it headless commerce, although I think it's broader than that. So that's why I kind of call it infrastructure, because I think that that's part of it. And I think the Shopify ecosystem and all the complementary products that are coming into the Shopify ecosystem is a big piece. But I think it's even bigger than that. Do you also look at like other countries, for example, like what's happening in China and looking at, you know, the amount of amazing innovation that's happened over there in e-commerce and retail? I mean, now they don't even call it like online, offline. It's just commerce almost because it's just kind of just so all around us. Do you kind of look over there and think, you know what, what could actually maybe translate over here to the West? Absolutely. You know, it's fascinating because the other day I, I tweeted something about commerce and the point was, you know, we're looking at more advanced markets like China versus laggards like the U.S. And I thought, wow. I'm really writing that. <laughs> but yes, I do think that there is huge opportunity and there's a lot to learn from looking at markets like China. At the same time, I think, you know, things happen in their due course. So I think, for example, live streaming is a key, is a perfect example of that and how advanced it is in China, how many millions they're selling. It's still very nascent in the US. That's not to say they, they won't get there. But I think, you know, as investors, as, as, as people in the ecosystem, you know, the customer isn't quite there yet. They will get there. But you have to sort of let it seep. My point about the playbook, I don't think it's going to be like exactly the same things that work in China are going to come and work in the U.S., you know, you know, play by play. I think there will be a nuance in terms of, you know, the distribution channels in the U.S., how e-commerce works in the States, how payments work in the States, how smartphones work in the States. It's a different market. And so you do have to you know, look at what's the potential, but also think, well, how does it get adopted here? What is one thing that you would change about venture capital? You know, I, I think that venture capital has a misconception with consumer products that tends to think that, you know, it's not venture investable. And Selfishly, I think it's a good thing because it creates opportunities for people like me to invest. But I think the flip side of it is, look, there is huge success stories. And, and as we said, if you look at Figs, if you look at Decium, if you look at you know all the recent acquisitions that are happening this year, or if you look at you know BarkBox going public, I think there's tons and tons of potential in consumer. So I think they just need to think about the fact that 
you know, consumer tech has attractive multiples, can have shorter exit timeframes, and has the ability to scale with less binary outcome. I feel like consumer brands have so many exit potential that can have very positive outcomes, right? They can be acquired, they can IPO, they can SPAC, they can continue to grow, they can be rolled up. I think there's just a ton of potential in, in consumer. I completely agree. And I love the fact that consumer is you know, out of fashion with the majority. Exactly. Part of me says, great. <laughs> and that was actually one of the, like the, the, almost the, one of the main reasons why I started this show was just because I felt like when it came to venture capital, oh, it was very like tech, especially like enterprise SaaS oriented. And so since I feel like consumers out of fashion, even though it's kind of come back in fashion a little bit on the technology side, but I think a lot of investors got burned because you no longer have those arbitrage opportunities in Facebook and Google like you used to. There's not many consumer companies that go that reach, you know, a billion dollar valuations. However, there's certainly a heck of a lot that might reach the 500 million. And so you could build a great compelling portfolio of adding quite a few hits that aren't as much outlier that you need in technology, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think, look, I think that, again, this is one of the reasons I like early stage investing is, you know, when you're investing at 10 or $12 million valuation, you know, you can be very, very happy with the type of exits that you described versus if you're doing later stage and you're, you're investing at a company that's already at, you know, 500 million, like, yes, companies do get to a $10 billion exit, but you have to figure out how to get to a $10 billion exit. That's not right. And so to me, that goes to the point about why consumer investing can be so exciting is because you can get in at really, you know, attractive valuations and, and support companies that can have great exits for everybody. So what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Personally, I love Eva Luna, which is by Isabella Allende. And it's the story of a woman in Chile during the revolutionary times, but it's really about, you know, personal courage and her story and sort of going after her dreams. So that was just it's a beautiful book. I just loved it. Professionally, I think every VC and every startup founder should read Brad Feld's Venture Deals. I think it's a little dry. It's heavy duty but you should understand what you're getting into. I consider it a textbook. I think you should know what you're doing. You should know what you're getting into. I think it's good for investors. I think it's good for founders. So I do highly recommend it, even if it's, you know, it'll feel like you have another college course, but it's worth it. Brad Fell's book is great. Really great. We've had also other people that mentioned that book. It's such a great introduction to really understanding venture capital and especially understanding the nitty gritty when it comes to term sheets, uh, which is incredibly important. What's the name of the first book? I haven't heard of it. Eva, E-V-A, like Eva. Eva Luna. Yeah, it, it's it's a novel, but I just, it's something that I read when I was a teenager and I read again and I just think it's, it's one of these epic stories set in Latin America during the communist era in Chile and it's just a fantastic book. So I just love stories about powerful women that sort of proceed with their lives in, in spite of all the, the challenges. I'm really excited to add that to the book list. This is going to be great. What's the best piece of advice that you've received? <laughs> You're going to laugh, but, you know, a very wise mentor once told me, Rachel, you don't have to convince everyone that you're the smartest person in the room every time. And <laughs> I, I tend to be very outspoken. And I think as a personality trait, I'm, I'm a helper. I always want to be helping people. And so I always want to jump in. And, you know, the point that she was making is, you know, 
sometimes just being a little bit more quiet and reserved and picking the right moment to speak can have a lot of power. So I've learned that over the years. <laughs> I love that. Is it hard being an investor and maybe sitting on a board and actually, you know, not be as hands-on since you have that personality? <laughs> yes. Yes and no. I think that, again, there's a beauty in what I'm doing in that I get to see multiple people going through this process. And I get to share not only what I learned personally, but what I'm seeing in terms of pattern recognition. But a lot of what you learn is like everybody has their journey. Everybody has their process and you have to respect that. So I think it took me a little bit of time to sort of adjust. But at the same time, I'm so thankful to be part of other people's journey that I really enjoy that and respect that. Awesome. My final question for you is what's one piece of advice that you have for founders? If something doesn't work, try something else. I know that sounds basic, but what I mean by that is I think it's super important to be close to your customer, be ready to not fall in love with the baby too much, to keep a certain distance, to keep a customer centricity. And, you know, there's always going to be a push and pull of, you know, you can't be changing your product every day, right? There's always going to be somebody who loves it and somebody who doesn't. But at the same time, keeping really, really close ear to the customer and understanding what they're saying, listening to the point of, you know, even when you were saying that that story about the target and, and it's like, oh, we got into target. That's great. Like, no, 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 no. Like, make sure you're keeping a close ear. If something is not working, try something else. Like, you know, nip it at the bud. Make sure you're being reactive. You're understanding because those sort of North Star, those really important, you know, your target account is important. Like, make sure you're listening to it and you're iterating fast if you have to. I think that's great. Completely agree. I mean, I think it's important to iterate and not just be like, oh, great, we're in Target as your example. Like, no, now actually the real work begins. Rachel, this has been so much fun chatting. Thanks so much for your time. Same here. The time just flew by. That was a lot of fun. And there you have it. It was amazing chatting with Rachel. You can follow her on Twitter at R10Brink1. That's R-T-E-N-B-R-I-N-K number one. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 